Luke chapter 12. And then, actually, let's start in Luke chapter 2. I do, an, I do know what I'm doing here. <laughs> Luke chapter 2. Uh, I, I want to start there. We will be, we're going to Luke chapter 12, where we've come in our series through this book. But Luke chapter 2, first of all. The infant Jesus was nearly six weeks old when Joseph and Mary set out from Bethlehem on that short journey north to the city of Jerusalem. They made their way up the Temple Mount, and we see them now strolling across the vast temple courtyard, baby in arms, and they have two birds in their possession. They'd come to offer the birds in sacrifice as a postpartum purification ritual for Mary in keeping with the Mosaic Law. And while they're in that courtyard, going to offer that sacrifice of those two small birds, there is a man by the name of Simeon who greets the couple and takes the infant Christ in his arms. Notice chapter 2 and verse 25 and how it describes this Simeon. 2.25, There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon was waiting for Messiah to come. Now, while Simeon is blessing the baby, a woman comes up, an elderly woman by the name of Anna, and she gives praise to God for Jesus' birth. Verse 38, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. We've stopped on this passage in the past, and I don't want to linger too long here, but think about it. She had friends. There were people she knew who lived a life of anticipation. And she went with great joy to tell them, He's here. He's come. The one we have been waiting for is here. Looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem, a reference to the Messiah's coming. So Simeon and Anna and their friends in Israel were Messiah watchers. They lived in keen anticipation of the coming Redeemer. God promised to send Messiah. His people believed that promise for how long? For a week? For a month? For a year? For a generation? No, for thousands and thousands of years. They had been waiting and believing. And when that Messiah came, here is Simeon and here is Anna, and their friends waiting. They were ready. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus promised that he would come again. It's been a long time. The question today, as is proven by his first coming, is not if he will return. He will. The question is not when he will return. That's not something we can know. The question is, when He comes, will you be waiting? Will you be ready? He's in no big hurry, is He? If you haven't noticed. Thousands of years of promise for the Messiah before He came. God is fully capable of acting quickly, but He rarely does so. 
He takes his time. In fact, if we can say so respectfully, God is incredibly slow to human beings. He takes his time. But in faith, we have to let him take his time. Because he runs the universe and we don't. And he knows the end from the beginning and he knows truth like we could never understand it. What we need to do is to wait and be ready. And the danger is for human minds, when God takes so much time, for us to begin to lose focus and to live as if he was really not coming back. As we pick up Jesus' teaching to his followers in Luke chapter 12, please turn there now, and verse 35. Jesus instructs us as his followers that we must not live like that. We must not live as if he would not return, as if his coming is something that we just set on the shelf and know that somebody somewhere believed it, but it's really not important for me. The life orientation that marks Simeon and Anna and friends should mark us today as followers of Jesus Christ. We are called in this passage by Jesus to live in watchful anticipation of Christ's return. To live in watchful anticipation of Christ's return. Now, please, we must think here as we move into this thought, as Jesus develops it, that does not mean that we are to merely be aware that Jesus will return. That's uh, lining us up for a real snoozer of a sermon to think that way. It's a fact. We know that Jesus will return. Okay, I know that he will return. End of story. No, it's not that. Rather, Jesus teaches us in this passage to have an attitude of keen anticipation. Now, it's important to know that he will return, but there's much more to it than that. It's having an attitude of anticipation. Expectancy is what Jesus calls us to have here. Notice verse 35 as he continues his teaching. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Let's stop there for a moment and do a little bit of work of transition here from one culture to another. Dressed and ready for service is a great phrase to describe what is intended by Jesus here. Literally, it reads a bit differently, and it refers to their robes, the long robes that they were to pick up off the ground and stuff in their belt, leaving their knees free to work and to run. If you saw someone in that culture with the robe down, they were relaxing or they were on official business or something of the sort, but when they picked the robe up and stuffed it in their belt, leaving their knees exposed, they were ready to work. They were ready to run. It was a sign of activity. Be dressed for service. Gird up your waist. And then it says here to leave the lamps burning. We have a cloth wick floating in a clay pot filled with oil. It's the oil that would burn, but coming through that wick 
that wick would need to be trimmed so that the oil would burn. And the oil, of course, needed to be replenished as it burned down. Make sure that your lamps are burning. Make sure that your robes are tucked in. And what's the scene? The scene that we see here, verse 36, is servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding feast. Remember, we don't have stopwatches here in this day or wristwatches. And there's not a tight schedule. In fact, a Jewish wedding might last for several days. You really never knew. It just depended when everybody wound down and when they were done. And so these servants know that Master is gone and perhaps expected to return sometime this evening. But as the hours pass, he does not come. And the temptation is to think he'll won't, he won't be here tonight. No, says Jesus. Don't have that sort of attitude and that kind of spirit. But rather, be ready for work with your lamps burning because you do not know when the Master will return. Should we feel sorry for these servants? I mean, this is a rough job, trying to stay awake at night while you're waiting for your master to come back. Should we pity them? Not at all. Verse 37, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. It will be worth it all. We don't pity them. They're privileged. It is good for those servants. Again, we're not talking about intellectual knowledge I know that my master may come back tonight at some point in time, but rather it is being found watching. Someone with anticipation waiting for the knock at the door. Now notice the second part of verse 37. Why is it good for those who are so found watching? I tell you the truth, says Jesus. Now watch this. Middle of 37, I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. That is an awesome statement. It defies reason. It blows the doors off of convention and it drips with the nectar of grace. He will serve them. Here's the servant in the home. Master is out late tonight. It's a wedding feast. We must remain ready for his return. So let's keep our robes girded and let's keep our lamps burning and let's wait for the knock at the door for when he comes, he will be tired. And we must meet him there and help him to prepare for bed and whatever else is necessary this night. Let's be ready for when the master comes. It's the middle of the night. There's a knock on the door. It's the master who is not sure if any of the servants will be awake at this late hour, but he notices the glow of light coming from within his home, and he's hopeful. And in fact, there immediately is an answer of the door. It is unlocked and it is opened up, and there are his servants gathered around ready to help him and ready to serve him. The master notices what has happened. And there's mist in his eyes as he considers the loyalty of his servants. And he does something absolutely unprecedented. He takes that wedding robe that he is wearing and he reaches down and he takes the long robe and puts it up in his belt. And he says, servants, I want you all to be seated at the table. You've waited long. 
and I'm sure that you are tired. But before you rest your head tonight, I'm going to make a meal for you that you'll not forget. And the master goes around to the table and he serves the servants. It will be good for those servants who the master finds waiting. If the picture of a master serving a slave seems unusual to a contemporary Westerner, it was revolutionary in the ancient Orient. There was a certain system of who was above whom and who served whom. You didn't mess with that. A master serving a slave was undignified. It was, in fact, scandalous. To have such intimacy and such fellowship in this way was below a master. But Jesus says the master girds himself and serves the servants. Jesus is a very different kind of master. He breaks all the rules. I'd like you to turn to Luke 22. Are we right about this? Is Jesus picturing himself as a servant of his servants? He created the world after all. Is this who he really is? Luke 22 and verse 24. Luke 22 and verse 24. This is later, but a dispute will arise among the disciples as to which of them was considered the greatest, which in that culture you determined in part by how many slaves served you. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? Yes. Everyone knows that. It's the one at the table. The one who's being served is the greatest. It's so obvious. But... Says the Lord of heaven and earth and the creator of the world, I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That you may eat and drink at my table. You are my servants, but I invite you to my table, and I am among you as one who serves. Now back to Luke chapter 12. Jesus, I think, is referring to himself when he says that he will dress himself and serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. 
verse 37. We should not press this, I don't think, to be so specific as a reference to the rapture, as a reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here the emphasis simply falls on watchfulness for Christ's return. There will be more revelation that is given that will fill in the details. And in fact, living as we do on this side of the cross, we've received that revelation to reference the return of Christ and to reference uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But here it is sufficient to revel in the blessed scandal of the Master serving the faithful servant. So summarizes Jesus in verse 38. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. We could just say it in the middle of the night. Continuing watchful anticipation is in view. By contrast, and Jesus here shifts the parable taking on a different picture in verse 39, looking at us in the role of house owner now as opposed to house servant. He says, verse 39, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Do house thieves send postcards? Dear Mr. and Mrs. Smith, or current resident, at 3 a.m. on December the 16th, I and a few friends of mine will be breaking into your house. Please remember to shop at Target for all your holiday needs. Is that, does that come to your door? It doesn't. There's no postcard. There's no notice sent on the part of a thief. When does a thief come? When you least expect it. You don't see it coming, or you'd meet him at the driveway and you'd have the police already there, gun in hand or whatever. You'd be there ready to meet the thief. Thieves come when you don't expect. Jesus is saying, that's exactly how I'm going to come. At a time when nobody expects it. So when you least expect him, expect him. Be ready, the word is. The word used in the New Testament for readiness is used in a number of contexts. One, what does it mean to be ready? This Greek word is used to describe good works. First Timothy, uh, first, uh, Titus rather, 3.1. In Titus 3.1, that word is used of doing good works. Being ready for Christ's return means to do what is good. It means to preach the gospel in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. It means here to anticipate the return of the Lord. So being ready for His coming is a spirit of anticipation which does good and speaks the truth of God's saving gospel and anticipates the Lord's coming. Now Peter, at this point, brings out a question. He asks in verse 41, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Us probably referring here to the 12 disciples. Notice there in verse 1 of this chapter, chapter 12 and verse 1. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. He's speaking also then to the crowd. And then verse 22, we see again, then Jesus said to his disciples... So Peter seems to be saying, now, Jesus, are you talking specifically to us, the twelve, 
perhaps the 70 or some smaller uh, group or larger group of disciples? Or are you talking to everyone? Jesus isn't going to particularly answer Peter's question, not specifically. But as he answers it indirectly, it's clear that Jesus is talking about anyone who follows him. And as Jesus clarifies what he has been saying, we detect perhaps a slightly distinct point in verses 42 through 48. So he's saying, first of all, live in watchful anticipation of Christ's return. Secondly, at verse 42 and following, he says, live in faithful fulfillment of your stewardship. This is how we are to anticipate the return of Christ, to be fulfilling what he has given us to do. That is where our focus is to be. It's not to be necessarily on charts. It's not to be necessarily going through the newspaper and finding the key that will tip us off to the fact that Jesus is coming. The focus is not on picking a date. The focus is upon doing what he's called us to do as we await his coming. That's what we find in verses 42 and following, beginning at verse 42. The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? Who is it? Now, what we have in view here, let me just stop for a moment and say, here is the very common uh, experience in that culture for a a homeowner to entrust a slave with the stewardship of caring for his entire estate. Think here, Potiphar and Joseph. Clear picture of this type of relationship. That's what Jesus has in view. Now Jesus, for sake of illustration, I assume, hones in particularly upon this steward's responsibility to take care of all of the other servants while the master is gone. Verse 43, It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns, that is, fulfilling his stewardship of managing the others, giving them their proper allowance of food and and taking care of them. Verse 44, I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. That is, the master will put that faithful steward in charge of all of his possessions. So the reward of faithful stewardship is what? It is greater responsibility. Now the context here, verse 40, is the coming again of the Son of Man. Notice the end of verse 40. The Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. And then he goes on here down in verse 44. I tell you the truth, He will put Him in charge of all His possessions. That is, where there is faithful stewardship, there will be an assignment of greater responsibility. Now, that's saying something to us that we may not pick up immediately here. Is the reward for faithfulness, for keen anticipation, the opportunity to sit forever on a cloud with a harp in your hand and this uncomfortable crown hanging there and to try to make music for all eternity? That's a ridiculous picture drawn by somebody who's never studied heaven from the Bible. What are we going to be doing when we enter the kingdom of God? What we're going to be doing is much of what we're doing here. It'll be transformed, it will be different, but we're going to work like crazy in the kingdom of God. The reward will be greater responsibility in that kingdom as we subdue the earth and as we serve one another. When Christ comes back, there's going to be crops to plant. 
When Jesus reigns from his throne in Jerusalem, there will be gardens to be manicured. There will be cities to be built and world travel to be undertaken. There will be rich learning to be done throughout the world and worship to be planned and celebrated. There will be relationships to enjoy. There will be people in all of that who will be assigned responsibility. And God is right now taking applications for stewards in His kingdom. We cannot conceive how very good it is going to be for those rewarded positions of service in that kingdom. That is a most hopeful and encouraging thought. And it calls upon us to simply be faithful to the stewardship that God gives to us. Whoever you are, whatever that responsibility, to be faithful to it, watching for his coming. As I go back to that word of our watchfulness, and we look at it again in the context of the New Testament, it means whoever we are that we do what God has called us to do, that all of us together share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost world, and that we live every day in anticipation of his return. That's a faithful steward, and there will be a reward of further responsibility when he comes for such stewards. Now, that's the hopeful side. Jesus is also clear here to warn, verse 45, It will not end well for every steward by any means. Verse 45, But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men's servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. My master is gone. I'm in charge of the household. I can do whatever I want here. It's time to party. And so this servant abuses his privilege and betrays his master's trust. Rather than protect and provide for the other servants, he abuses them, he beats them. Rather than living in anticipation of the master's coming and return, he ignores the future and he squanders his days in unrestrained self-indulgence. Playing the moral fool, he looks only at the moment and he ignores that inevitable knock at the door. It's going to come. Verse 46, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. I just need to bring this point in for the sake of some here, perhaps more than others, but there are those who argue theologically that this is a believer who experiences the loss of reward, but who nonetheless enters into heaven. I could certainly think of a better way of saying that, if I could say, that, say it that way. Does it strike you as hopeful to know that the Son of Man is going to come back and dismember you and assign you a place with the unbelievers? That doesn't sound too hopeful, does it? But there are those who argue vehemently that this is referring to a Christian who simply loses reward. And I think part of the agenda, whether known or not, is for us to have the idea that all we need to do is pray a prayer and we get our ticket to heaven. And it really doesn't matter how we live as long as we've prayed that little prayer and asked Jesus to save us from our sin. From that point on, we can live like the devil. 
Well, let's take it at face value. Jesus says that servant will be dismembered and assigned with the unbelievers. That doesn't sound like heaven to me. And if we take a parallel theme out of another message of Jesus, Matthew 25, 30, it says that this servant will be assigned to darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a common phrase for hell. This is not a believer. But here is where I think the interpretation fails. This is an individual who's serving Christ. This is an individual who is assigned a responsibility by the Master and by the Lord. This may well be a pastor and a seminary teacher, a Christian leader somewhere, or someone who claims to be serving Christ, but really is failing the stewardship Boldly dishonoring that stewardship. Not concerned about the coming of Christ, but concerned simply to use privilege and position to harm others and for self-indulgence. This is a Christian, in quotation marks, whose real heart is revealed in the failure to honor Christ. That servant of Jesus will be judged severely. There are others. We've looked at the two extremes. Over here we have the good servant who is anticipating the coming of Christ. We have over here on the other extreme this wicked servant who takes the privilege that Christ gives and abuses it and uses it for selfish purposes. But there's room in between. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to here, beginning at verse 46. I didn't read the end of verse 46, I don't think, did I? He will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. But at verse 47 now, we look at those who come in between. Verse 47, that servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. Here perhaps is, it might be a reference to the earlier individual, but I think here perhaps is a, is a second disobedient servant but one who is not as blatant and as godless in his rebellion against the master. He simply is disobedient. Now, we don't need to go into great detail about what this discipline looks like. With further revelation, we understand that we're not under condemnation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a warning here that there will be consequences for failing to obey the master's word. Verse 48, but the one who does not know and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. Even ignorance is not a ticket or a license to sin. Ignorance will be prosecuted. Why? Because there is, as Farrar puts it, no such thing as absolute moral ignorance. Ignorance of what God wants is a responsibility that every individual has and must give account for. Those who are genuinely ignorant of God's truth will not be as severely punished, but they will be punished. Those, on the other hand, who do know their master's desires and fail the stewardship will suffer more severe discipline. Why is that? The middle of verse 48, this is the principle. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much will be asked. 
Again, we don't need to read too much into that as far as future accountability and future punishment and how that looks in eternity as we meet Christ. But the point is clear. The truth that you have, the information that you have, the call that has been issued to you will be taken into account as you meet Christ. Now, that's no command to stay in ignorance. In fact, we do not want to stay in ignorance because we want to know what our master desires so that we can be included with those servants for whom it will be good as he rewards with greater responsibility. Is there a risk there? Yeah, there's a risk there. If you haven't noticed, if you come to Jesus as Savior, there's a risk. There's a massive risk. Anyone who wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. Of course there's a risk in following Jesus. So is, does, it, is, does it make sense? Is it, a, is, is it calculated wisdom to say, I'm going to stay ignorant of what the Master wants so that I'm not receiving severe blows? That's utter foolishness. There is the risk on the other side of being an unfaithful and rebellious servant. What we want to do is know everything that our master wants and to be ready so that it is good for us when he comes. See, Jesus is fair. There's no pop quizzes. He's really fair. He tells us this is how it is. If you're waiting for me, if you're seeking to know what I desire, and when I come back, you're waiting and you're doing what I've called you to do, it will end well for you. If you are fooling around, misusing your privilege as a believer, if you are failing to do what honors him, it is not going to end well. Where that lands depends on what you know and how much you've disobeyed. But it's going to be fairly straightforward. I say all of this with a hand on the later revelation that there is in the Lord Jesus Christ no condemnation. There is a salvation that comes and washes us clean of our sin. And we can enjoy that salvation with confidence. But having received that salvation, we should seek and strive to be faithful servants who are waiting when he comes back. Should Jesus return in our lifetime, Will he find you waiting in keen anticipation? If he came, so to speak, to knock at your door, would you be ready? Or would you have to kind of slip a sheet of paper underneath the door and say, could you give me a few moments? I've got a few things to clean up in my life. I really want you to come in, Jesus. I'm really glad that you're here, but just give me a little time. Will he find you waiting? Will you be like Simeon and Anna? It will be not a time to bolt the door and slide the note under the door, but it will be a time to open it and welcome him home. Welcome him here. Yes, it's been a long time. It was a long time the first time, too. But he will come. Our Kent Hughes quotes A.T. Olson, who noted once, I think wisely, that there's an awful lot of confusion among Christians on when Jesus will come back. There's these different positions, and they sound sort of like drugs or something to some of us, but uh, there's the pre-trib view. 
And there's the post-trib, and now the mid-trib view. And there is the pre-millennial view, and the post-millennial view, and the amillennial view, and all these different views about when Jesus will come. But Olson says this, and I quote, With all this difference, all are agreed that the final solution to the problems of this world is in the hands of the King of Kings, who will someday make the kingdoms of this world his very own. So when Christ comes, is there some confusion? But that he is coming, all Christians are agreed. And the issue is then and now, are you watching for his return? Paul said to the Philippians, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you with Paul eagerly awaiting? Titus 2 and verse 13, Paul issues the exhortation to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What is the evidence that we're waiting? It is living self-controlled and upright in godly lives. It is righteous living. It is witness. It is expectation. It is being a faithful steward today of what Jesus has placed in your care. Does your private life indicate that you are living in anticipation of Christ's return? Does your checkbook reveal the same your future goals, your overall orientation in public, does it say to all publicly what, it should, what should be said privately that all of his or her life is lived with anticipation of Jesus coming? Now, the point here is not to simply chide us. You're not living with anticipation of Christ's return. I can, and I have said that to myself. I need to learn. I need to grow. I need to be more awake to the presence of Christ in my life and His coming. But that's not the end of it, to simply chide us to be aware now. How are you going to be aware if all it is is that's a bad thing not to be aware? That's going to be pretty difficult to turn on this week. Yeah, I've got to keep remembering it's bad to not be aware of the coming of Christ. That's true, but it goes further. What is the motivation that Jesus laces through the passage for us? It will be good for that servant that he finds watching. There is glory on the road ahead for us. There is privilege on the road ahead for us. There is blessing that is there for those who eagerly await Christ. We should do so because we love Him. We should do so also. And it's right for us to do so because we desire what he will bring when he comes. His blessing, his encouragement, his reward. Much more, the point is to remind us that Jesus Christ is coming back and that our future reward and glory depends upon how we live as stewards in his absence. So there's great hope. Jesus returning and serving you as a faithful servant. I want to be part of that meal. That's what drives me, to be aware of Christ.
I've told this story before. It's had a deep impact upon my life. I share it again. What does it take to be a watcher? What does it take to be faithful? It's simply a stewardship of what you've been given. I was led through a home um, that was created to care for people with mental disability. And the tour guide in a Christian home pointed us to a man, about six foot five, very big individual, but he had the mind of a four-year-old. Very sad story. But he said, I want to tell you something about this man. Every day, four-year-old capacity, every day he gets up in the morning, he looks out the window, and he says, I wonder if Jesus will come back today. Every day. I wonder if Jesus will come back today. There's none of us who has such limited mental capacity in this auditorium today. But I wonder how many days go by when we never think about Jesus coming back. There's the rebuke. But in it, what we can bring that this man could not even conceive is to think of the joy and the privilege and the reward and to be driven by that. To have Jesus say when he comes back, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's bow for prayer. Oh, Father, how involved we get with the things of this life and how quickly our mind gets turned in wrong directions. I pray that you will help us to take account of our own life and our own heart. I pray, God, that you would do a work within us this day, that we would be waiters, those who anticipate the coming of Christ, that you would change us and mold us, Father, according to your will, according to your purposes. If there would be any among us who know not Christ as Savior, I pray, Lord, that you'll draw such individuals to yourself and show them, Lord, that you are coming back and that there is an accounting. I pray that you'll show them your grace and your mercy extended to them in Jesus, who paid the penalty of sin and has risen from the dead. Please show them that gospel hope today. For those of us who know you, I pray, God, that we would be motivated to live for your glory, for your honor, as faithful, watching servants. Bless us to this end, I pray. May Jesus be exalted through us as we sing and as we seek in our hearts to be watchers for Messiah's coming. In his name we pray. Amen. Stand